0: I think we're going to start. Since we've limited a long time tonight, we have a very impact program. I'm Jim Perry. I'm a Perry Media Studies Writing. And I'm one of the co-hosts of the series on new media and civic uh, art. Uh, this is the third of the series. Uh, and tonight features Ernest uh, and who will be introduced by Sasha and uh, just a few notes on the speakers and the commentators. Uh, I do want to say that this is a collaboration between two programs, um, CMSW and um, Art, Culture, and Technology, ACT, and a uh, new series for exploring some of the ways in which we can collaborate on some of these subjects of uh, contemporary importance and uh, mutual interest. Um, Sasha is a scholar, activist, media maker, and will introduce, uh, Marissa, introduce uh, Marissa, and is currently associate professor of civic media at MIT. They're a faculty associate with the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard, and faculty affiliate with the MIT Open Documentary Lab and the MIT Center for Civic Media. Um, Sasha's first book, Out of the Shadows, Into the Streets, uh, was on the Transmedia Organizing Immigrants Writing. <clears throat> and that was published in 2014 by American Press. Uh, we'll have two responses tonight. Uh, first, uh, Jane Sachs, who is a creative collaborator, works out of Chicago as an arts producer, writer, and educator, and works on challenging uh, chant- uh, and championing issues um, of gender, sexuality, human rights, uh, <coughs> civil rights. She's uh, been a lecturer at uh, Yale and will be a lecturer at Harvard soon in the future. Uh, I'm not sure exactly. Uh, and is also uh, president and artistic director of Project project, uh, <coughs> Uh, which is an organization that creates new models of cultural participation and experience. So the emphasis of this whole series is on practice, art practice as a way of addressing uh, uh, serious contemporary issues, and trying to use art to leverage uh, social awareness, social imagination, stimulate social imagination, stimulate new thinking about uh, some of the uh, massive number of issues that we're all facing today. Uh, our second <coughs> uh, respondent will be Steve Seidel, who holds a Patricia tr- uh, Bauman and John Landrum Bryant Chair in Arts in Education at the Harvard Red School of Education. He's the faculty director of the Arts in Education Program and a uh, former director of Prime Zero. Uh, his current research includes talking with artists who teach a study of working artists' ideas and insights into the nature of artistic development and learning. So um, I'll turn it over to Sasha now, who will introduce Marissa. Thank you. everyone, so welcome. Uh, it's nice <coughs> Oh, okay.
1: you, you can you Hello, What's up, Ben? Okay, so uh, good evening, everyone, uh, thanks for coming. I'm really, really excited uh, to introduce uh, Yisad Moranjan. and John. Um, I'm not gonna read or, uh, or recite her biography to you because you probably did that when you decided to come to the event, um, and you can find it online. So I thought it might be good instead to just share uh, an anecdote or a little uh, story about uh, our past collaborations and how we came to know each other. So we actually met first in 2008, um, we were both participating in Eyewitness Video, which was a sort of uh, citizen journalism uh, video and documentary collaborative that uh, we gathered together in Twin Cities in 2008 to provide uh, grassroots coverage of the uh, Republican National Convention. It was meeting in 2008 at the time. Uh, the RNC in the Twin Cities, uh, as you can imagine, it was, a, it was heavily militarized. There were thousands of riot police. There was lots of tear gas floating through the streets of, uh, of St. Paul and, and the Twin Cities. There was uh, intensive. Uh, there was, there, it turned out later that there had been an infiltration process where the FBI had infiltrated some of the key organizing um, groups that were involved in putting together the protests against the Republican National Convention. And some of the FBI agents had come up with a plan to, um, um, I don't know, to violently attack police in the the convention center. And they had, of course, come up with this idea and found the materials and basically had plans to make all this happen. So we were there, we we arrived, Um, we both had been sort of asked to (coughs) come participate because of previous work we had done in media arts, in community journalism, and within the media network. Uh, the Independent Media Center's uh, network of radical, grassroots storytellers and journalists that emerged uh, during the late uh, 1990s, prior to the existence of social media. Um, And we had both been part of that that network. And so my first experiences with Marissa were um, kind of in this intensive uh, situation of heavy police repression, uh, and... We, I remember we formed small teams of videographers and spotters to go out and document what was happening. And the goal here was to make a documentary, and it was also to provide footage that could be used as legal evidence for the legal teams that were going to get people out of the bogus charges that we knew the police were going to throw on people um, for peacefully protesting. And so I remember sort of going out into the streets, and we were taking turns shooting footage and uh, swapping out um, Mini DV tapes. Do you remember those? Do you remember mini, mini DV tapes? Okay. So we had to carry around the mini DV tapes. There was a whole system for like turning in the tapes because we knew that police were targeting um, sort of social movement videographers, and so we had a drop drop points all around the protest zone where you would hand in tapes. So we were sort of working together to try and document this stuff, get coverage, not get clubbed or gassed too much. Um, and I'm telling this story. Um, partly to establish Maurice the street cred as her, her background in <laughs> the global justice movement. But also because what I do remember from this time um, is that if, you, if you're if you going to be collaborating with someone to do some type of project or do some type of work, you want someone who's really paying attention both to what's going, around, going on in the environment around you, what's taking place in the broader sort of scene, the broader ecology, the broader space, and you also want someone who's going to be really kind of looking out for you and literally has your back and Uh, That was definitely my experience with Marisa at that time. Um, I felt like this was someone that I could really, um, you know, trust to to have that environmental awareness um, help uh, sort of navigate and move as a team through this quite violent and dangerous space in a process of media production um, that was a collaborative process that had many, many people involved um, and that we felt like was important because of the um, the, the values that we were there to stand up for—values of democratic participation and peaceful protest, and so on and so forth. Um, from that time forward, I went on to collaborate uh, with Marisa on a couple other projects, and each time I had a very similar experience. Like this is somebody who is a media artist who is incredibly talented, who works with some of the most uh, marginalized uh, communities. Um, not to quote, unquote, give voice, but to actually use processes of participatory design and collaboration to um, to amplify, and extend, and help build community power through media arts projects. Um, She's someone who always gives credit to everybody in the process in ways that are unfortunately, I think, too rare in the type of uh, often sort of like ego-driven environments of uh, both media as a field and also uh, cultural theory and artistic practice. Um, So I would say, you know, if you need someone who's going to have your back, Marisa is that person, and if you want someone who's going to be doing uh, uh, participatory and community-led artistic production uh, practices in ways that really, really are about recognizing and lifting up uh, the value that everybody's bringing to the space, um, again, um, she is your person. So with that, I guess that's all i have to say and thank you so much for being here we're incredibly honored and privileged to have you with us um so take it away it's a
2: perfect segue um to this first slide and so i graduated um during the time when there's an economic recession is just starting which meant that I had uh, the fortune of, um, being as there was very few jobs being available uh, to me with my art degree, um, I took on a number of jobs, including, um, that all became important to me later, so I cared for someone in a wheelchair, I did woodworking and ran a woodworking construction business for seven years, Um, during that time we saw a lot of things like um, well, when we installed sheetrock, the sheetrock, um, which is made out of this, uh, has sil- it's silicon based. Um, after we would put up these walls and sand them down, then immediately the next day I would get sick and be you know sick for a couple of days. And so I became aware later of um, you know there is not enough um, tightening of those health and safety standards for for workers because it would make the cost of um, construction and real estate go up. Um, or for example, one time the wheel, the saw on, um, the table saw came flying out and flew to the rafters. Uh, luckily, did not hurt anybody. Um, but I was just all, re- you know, I became really aware about the hazards on a workplace. Um, I also worked as an advocate for street vendors and also as a media advocate with the organization that Sasha um, had mentioned. Um, so these are some of the Um, You know, the goals was to um, raise awareness in the public and amass evidence that could be used um, to end and curb undemocratic things like illegal surveillance and excessive force and infiltration by the police and infringement on the right to peacefully assemble and the harassment of the press, so. Um, so, my art background and the sundry jobs um, led me to founding Studio of Rev, which is a nonprofit, and we co design public art and creative media with and for low wage workers, immigrants, youth, and women. So, some of the projects that we created include um, we have done a number of tools. Um, including this one called Contratados. Sasha was um, a collaborator, as well as um, Centro de los Derechos del Migrante, which is an advocacy organization that advocates on behalf of the 90,000 H2A and H2B workers who come in from, um, to come and work in seasonal occupations here in the US, like crab uh, harvesting or uh, working in fields. Um, The majority are uh, from Mexico. And there's um, rampant abuse in the, the workplace. So this is a Yelp site where uh, workers can rank and rate their employers. Um, it also functions then as a job, you know, a tool for job seekers. And um, our role was in creating these audio novellas as well as these uh, comics. Um, this is a project that is just about to come out. Um, it is. Uh, do you guys know those maps that you get on the subway? You kind of unfold accordion like like this. They're called Z-fold maps. So um, we have been working with the mayor's office of immigrant affairs on these maps that use English language learner strategies to provide new immigrants with resources about immigration, mental health services, participatory budgeting, and more. So they're. Distribution is through hundreds of community centers and English language learner communities throughout New York City. And we're using the language of birds because birds birds are migratory. So um, in that project, and a lot of the work that I do, um, this theme of hospitality comes up and up. Um, Because um, my parents are immigrants, it's it's just a kind of an incredible, kind of an incredible journey to get here and establish oneself and so forth. And um, the theme of hospitality also figures into um, this project, um, which is a book that I published about artists embedded in government industries and electoral cycles. So the artists are using and adopting the language patterns and symbols of the larger institution in which they're embedded in order to make the work itself. Um, And actually, I'll pass that around uh, along with the next one, so you can take a break. Proagonist is a book that is um, about productive friction. And um, if antagonism is about oppositionality, says Foucault, then um, agonism is about uh, mutual incitement and struggle, so embracing struggle. Um, is written in black and blue, the colors of a good bruise, and it has a half-inch hole in it. Um, actually, if you have it, can you raise it up so you can see there's an actual hole in it? Um, the idea about a principal tenet of agonism is that about embracing the other. So here, the half-inch hole so you can frame the other and keep them with you as you read along. Um, So now I'll go into projects in a more extended fashion. Um, Among the many jobs that I took um, when I graduated from undergrad was teaching kids in school, in public schools as well as after school settings. Um, And my particular interest was in teaching literacy through art. Um, and uh, I had students that were um, that were faced with these challenges so these were the kids who came to my classroom Um, and this Howard Gardner's theory of multiple intelligence appealed to me and I thought was interesting or helped me think through these different strategies Um, so according to the theory the you know there's different kinds of intelligences we tend to and especially in traditional schools tend to emphasize the top two mathematical logical and verbal linguistic um and a lot of the kids that i were coming to my classroom had other skills and other strengths and so if i could leverage those and they would get excited about literacy so um, a friend of mine in honduras invited me to um come do a project on Hon- in Honduras. And she said, you have to come. They have the largest library there in northern Honduras. And so I went to go see this library, and it was um, a bookshelf long. So my goal was to um, encourage, um, will spark people's excitement about reading and encourage literacy. So here's the project that we did. Mm-hmm. mention that um, that project uh, we I staged it with this community first eight years ago and I didn't know at the time that community which is up in the hills they have very bad cell phone reception um, and you'd have to come down the hill and you know call someone on your cell phone um, so we didn't have um, and they didn't have very much email um, so I didn't have regular communication with them and a year and a half after we did it I was talking with one of the organizers, and they um, casually said, oh, it's Beeble Bandita Week. And I was like, what's that? And she said, oh, you know, da-da-da. So she told me that they'd been carrying on this tradition and doing these kind of serialized, episodic plays, um, like skits and inventing new characters and so forth. Um, So I think why that project um, worked, or what is sticky about it, um, was that it's, um, it's used this strategy of white labeling, which is that, um, you know, uh, it's easily adaptable, um, and it can take uh, a life on its own without me being there. And so, um, uh, you know, in the United States, uh, the Seattle Public Library adopted Bibel Bandido as their mascot for their digital media programs, um, and they do this annual teacher librarian training to six to 60 individuals who then adapt Bibli Bandido for their own needs, so it's carrying on um, without me. Um, This is a recent exhibition in central Harlem where there's a 30% 30 of the middle schoolers are um, below the standard uh, literacy rate Um, and um, I think for me it's a guiding project also um, and because it fits into um, well Arabian Nights is for me a guiding North Star. And Bebel Bandito for me, kind of fits this, um, what this did. So Arabian Nights was developed over many millennia um, by women over several continents. Um, So it's this collaborative and ongoing story with a a frame tale with different stories tucked in between. Um, In another project, which is also a frame tale, I have been an artist and resident with the National Domestic Workers Alliance um, for the past um, eight years. And um, uh, for context for this collaboration, um, you may know that in the 1930s and 40s is when most workers received basic rights like minimum wage and days of rest and overtime wage. Um, But domestic workers and farm workers were excluded from receiving the same rights because at the time they were largely African American. And southern lawmakers would not, inclu- would not pass those laws unless they were excluded. Um, and so this legacy of, um, you know, of injustice persisted until um, the 90s when domestic workers started organizing, telling their stories to lawmakers in Albany. Um, and in 2010, passed the nation's first domestic workers Bill of Rights. Um, and to get the word out to the 200,000 domestic workers, so nannies, housekeepers, and caregivers, in New York, um, we created this audio novella uh, app. You call in 347-WORK-500 on any kind of phone. This is the time before smartphones were accessible. And you'd hear what sounds like click and clack and card tug, but for nannies. Um, And when other states started passing their Bill of Rights um, to meet domestic workers where they're at, we created this mobile studio called the Nanny Van. And myself and uh, my friend Anjum and my newborn son um, would team up with domestic worker advocacy groups around the country. And we'd come to unpack. And we would do these um, sessions where we would exchange information and parlay what we had learned. So it's this kind of fluid um, you know, sharing of resources and so forth. And we would create different kinds of things along the way. So we continue making these audio novella apps. Um, We sometimes made these paper toolkits, we call them. So I spent a lot of time reading through laws and thinking about how they could be simplified or made funny even, um, or accessible. Um, I was doing a lot of recordings and interviews, and I produced four songs that feature the songs of domestic workers, which are featured in the film that you'll hear shortly. Um, And we also started choreographing these dances. So the dances, um, a lot of the domestic workers that we were working with particularly like Filipina or Latino women, um, were really familiar with um, like kind of group and line dancing. And so we then started using that as a medium to fold in information and convey history of rights, um, and also as a way to prompt them to share what they knew. Um, so the, the movements essentially kind of encode this information. and it was a lot of fun, and you know people learn it because they're laughing. Um, and then we also started playing um, with graphics. This is something I produced that has been in a few museum spaces and using social media. And um, at the time when my son was born, um, I started reflecting on um, what are the best um, and most impactful ways that we were reaching people. Um, this is our audience engagement plan, in which I'm, you know, we I sat down with my collaborators and. We charted out. Okay, well, this piece of media is used for this appeals to this demographic, and you know, a lot of the workers are using Facebook for this thing, but not, um, but not for this kind of information. So this is a way to both get on board with our partners as well as um, figure out what is lacking. Um, and so we started recognizing the role of. I mean, despite the, I previously had like sculptures and installations in museums, but um, I I then started recognizing that as domestic employers. You know, like myself, who spend time in museums and you kind of have this captive audience. So I used the language of WPA era posters, which is also the same moment when workers were excluded from receiving the same rights, and I made these silkscreen um, prints. Um, and I was using, you know, these WPA poster strategies of being com- explicitly didactic. Um, and conveying wonky things that I wanted people to be angry about or like change um, or inspired by. Um, so, um, and then further to, in order to appeal to domestic employers, um, we um, created this film, which is 24 minutes long and it comes in four parts um, for P- that went on PBS Digital and um, this is the first episode.
3: My name is Marissa John. I'm an artist, teacher, and mom. This 1967 Berger Station Wagon is the Care Force One, inspired by some of the incredible caregivers of met. Like most working parents, I'm still figuring it out. This is Anja, my collaborator. We've been making artwork for years. And when my son, Luca, AKA Choco, was born, she helped me juggle things. She still does. My think parents are in their 70s. They live across the country and don't have much of a safety net. I don't have the financial means to support them the way that I would like to. My most recent project is with domestic workers and advocates like Ai Jinpu. first work all of work possible. Our collaboration led to a project called the Care Force, a movement that celebrates domestic workers and the people they care for. will be over at yeah. like 6.30, though. Okay. This is Nabila, a Nepali born organizer in New York City who helped cast the nation's first laws that gave domestic workers basic workplace protections. And this amazing woman is Nabilisia. Nabilisia came as a team from Brazil to work as an nanny in Boston where she encountered horrific working conditions. After removing herself from that situation, she earned a PhD Now it is a non-profit that advocates for the rights of Brazilian
2: So this question of um, success comes up. Like, how do you define that, and what are your goals? Um, And on the one hand, we know things like um, 1,200 people called in per month um, on the Audio Novella app, without you know, in the first uh, few years, without um, any advertising except for word of mouth. Um, We know that we, with the project altogether, we um, were able, you know, we got media coverage. Um, It should be said that. I felt that whenever the pro- uh, whenever um, our work was in the news, the thing um, I didn't care if they got they included my name. I don't care if they got the project um, interpreted incorrectly. Um, what the goal that we established with our partners was, um, as long as they used the word domestic worker or domestic employee, it was doing the work that we wanted to do. So that was a win for us. Um, we also, um, yeah, we presented it also in a number of, um, you know, like the Department of Labor who asked us, um, the kinds of workers that you reach are ones that are, you know, they're not counted in the official workforce, and so we actually don't know how to reach them. Um, so that was important. Um, we know that, for example, um, we've, we recognize that it's like, it wasn't so much the eyeballs on the video itself that were doing impact work, as like when I was doing screenings, and also when there's social media around it, um, that was doing the work that we wanted to do with this project. Um, So we did a tweet chat, um, which um, we were surprised to find it trending um, just below Janice and Justice Kennedy um, on June 27th. Um, So uh, on a personal level, there's a number of people who would tell me, um, you know, I never identified as a nanny and I've been doing this work for 15 years until I walked by the nanny van um, or until I encountered this project Um, so people yeah so or or like domestic employers who would say um, you know I'm thinking of an individual who is works at a museum is super conscientious individual Um, his daughter is in a wheelchair and he his family has relied on caretakers and you know I just haven't thought about the history of caretakers or thought about my role as a domestic employer until I saw this work. Um, so, and then there's um, this cake thing here. Um, we were um, on Facebook as one of the domestic worker groups in California that we had worked with around a nanny van event. Um, we randomly, after the event, found this um, picture of a cake that was made in the shape of a nanny van. It was orange, and um, it wasn't that they asked us. Um, what was, what, uh, which was fantastic. In other words, they felt so enfranchised and it was such a positive experience for them that they wanted to make a cake um, on the occasion of its one-year anniversary. Um, so that was, um, that was an honor. Okay, so now I'm changing PowerPoints. is a new project. Um, our studio for many years was next to this NGO called Peripheral Vision International and they do work in Honduras and um, they have an office as well in Brooklyn and at the time um, they were telling me about the work that they did what which is um, media advocacy and human rights and um, they would do these video PSAs. so it might be a two-minute video about how um, something like Zika or um, uh, you know random public health um, service announcements um, that was important to them and they would take a commercially pirated DVD and they would burn their video onto the fore part of the DVD so it plays before you see Terminator 2 for example okay and they would um, these uh, bootlegs would then go out and they would be sold and distributed through these video halls, sold on the street, and in these video halls um, where people gather together and they watch multiple screens at once. Um, the majority of videos that come in um, are from Hollywood, Nollywood, or Bollywood. Um, and um, this, um, anyways, I'll go into it in the video. Um, this is what the outside looks like. Um, and the context to this project um, that I'll share with you shortly is um, that in Uganda, the things that they were, um, there's significant human rights um, concerns. Um, So, um, uh, As in, for example, a friend of ours who um, produces play with a gay man was thrown into jail. So alternative um, perspectives um, were really key, um, and the arts play a really important role in um, discussing things that you can't normally discuss. Um, So, encoding things. They asked me to, um, they said, you know, most of the stuff that comes in is commercially, you know, these commercial flicks. There's no alternative perspectives. Would you curate something that presents, we want to know what alternative film and video looks like in the West. And there's a burgeoning community here, um, and they were part of this conversation as well, and we want to know what that looks like. Um, so this is the project that we um, uh, that I curated, um, which features um, seven artists um, from the African diaspora. So then my collaborators in Uganda asked me, um, well, we wanted to make something um, anew. And um, in reflecting on my relationship with Uganda, um, which was kind of you know, incidental via this office mate of mine at the time, um, I noticed that on a lot of the video halls, there was these pictures of Bruce Lee, um, which I thought was curious. Um, and there's just like a general enthusiasm about bruce lee um, and i was thinking about when i grew up in dallas texas um, and i felt so invigorated when bruce lee was on my television I, like chinese ecuadorian kid in dallas texas um, he felt he, i felt like he was my personal ambassador um, and so i started watching these bruce lee films again and i kept on thinking about um, this scene in enter the dragon do you guys know the scene raise your hand if you know this scene. okay so um, Bruce Lee is getting busted up. And um, he can't see his enemy because he's in this hall of mirrors. And he remembers his sensei, who says to him, "Um, to defeat, to vanquish the enemy, you must kill the illusion. And so I was like, what does that mean? How do I interpret that allegory about mirrors and looking and truth and deception and so forth? And I started thinking about um, how, for me, um, I understand truth through another individual. Um, and so um, and I would say, you know, I, I felt like I would, I wanted to make a project in which the other person, um, there was this process of looking and um, through this other person, you know, through another. Um, and I started um, by making these masks. Um, Next.
3: Where you see yourself reflected
2: in the other and also distorted. Um, and mirrors are one of the things that have um, um, always been an inspiration to artists from Rembrandt to Velazquez to Van Eyck um, to Mural Ublees. Um this is a sanitation truck. Um, where you see yourself implicated in what you're throwing out. Um, And so I kept on in New York, um, making these vignettes with my collaborators, and I realized that it was such an interesting um, way to explore things that we would otherwise never talk about or interact around, and it was this way to explore these other um, states of affect. Um, And it would kind of draw out um, people's New narratives or we felt like we were forging new myths and it felt like an event um, so um, yeah it, it encapsulated this idea of what Victor Turner calls "betwixt twixt and between um, and, and also this idea that um, the liberatory nature of masks by the virtue that they conceal um, so I'm going to share with you this video um, that's a work in progress that um, I, I created with my collaborators in Uganda <laughs> Oh, <laughs> In these um, vignettes, we're exploring um, myths and rituals, and um, we thought of this scene as um, uh, you know. There's many cultures around the world where there's a character who is ferrying or boating someone from one side to another. I um, occupying this liminal space, um, and um, I then have taken that project um, to other places, as in. Over this past summer, I went with this family, um, a friend of mine who's from Kazakhstan. She invited me to go on this family vacation with her and her two daughters. Um, and she, I said, you know, I have to work on this. I have to work on this deadline. I have this, I have this show at this museum in Utah. And she said, just bring it along. Let's we'll just do it with you. So I was like, okay. So I went on this family vacation, and here we are. This is one of the uh, teenage daughters, Yerkeev. And we're kind of exploring the history. Um, Here we are in uh, Uzbekistan and um, uh, we were this the vignette was prompted by this um, this kind of bridal hat. Um, So we were coming up with a story about these characters Mm -hmm. Um, um, and people kind of get wrapped and folded into the thing and volunteer to be part, you know, show us and take us new places. This was the tour guide who got really excited about being in them and then took us to his favorite place, which is this lake. Um, And um, we next went to Azerbaijan. They were visiting um, a friend of, um, a mutual colleague. And um, you know, Azerbaijan is a place where there's also human rights issues. And people, you know, um, this is my friend, Faye Gagmet, uh, an artist who is also very aware of the role that he plays in coding information through the arts, and it's a way to speak out um, in the midst of censorship. Um, this is um, not, fe- oh, this is wrong, it's not featuring Sultan. Um, this is an individual who um, wanted to be in this vignette, but couldn't be, um, he didn't want his name to be associated with it, because um, professionally he might be compromised if he was, um, shown wearing a shirt. Um, we thought of this uh, vignette as the breakup. Um, so here they are, um, these pieces in a museum. Um, right now, intervented both, uh, there's some in a kind of gallery setting, and then there's some that are kind of intervented, like the one about um, death, that the driver. Um, she's intervented in this hall with mummies. Um, and then there's this red room of demons or ghosts. Um, okay, so the last um, project that I'm going to share with you and end with um, is um, well, I'm going to just start it and you'll see.: Recently, I was alarmed from the sight of these headlines in the news. Can we analyzed where we've gone with the sound Can I, sorry,
3: can we bump up the sound? Sorry. Shit. Was that the ID that I had? I searched my medical records and was relieved to find that my ID was a different model and make. That got me remembering a conversation I had with my gynecologist. So, what's your contraception plan after you give birth? Uh-huh. But all I know is that I'm hella fertile. Ever tried the copper IUD? Nope. No. What does the copper do? Well, in a small device, that go into the uterus. The copper acts as a spermicide. Whoa. Copper ions are zapping the sperm? Well, we don't really know what's happening with the copper. The ions are doing their thing. But we have to name. Around the world, it's been more popular. 41% of Chinese women use it, 23% of French women, 27% of Norwegian women, and it's gaining popularity in the U.S. Okay, sure. Anything except for the pill. So after the birth of my son, the thing got popped in. And now, looking at these headlines, I couldn't stop thinking about those covers,
2: Okay, <clears throat> so there's a team of scientists in Florida who are trying to harness the energy from lightning. They send a rocket outfitted with a copper nose into the air, and under the right atmospheric conditions, the copper ions induce a lightning storm. The energy travels down to the ground via co- a coil of copper wire. if me and my IUD outfitted with its highly conductive copper, if we were standing near that rocket, do you think I would fail tingle in my cooch?
0: <laughs>
2: and I started to wonder about the way that copper sutures the natural and built environment coursing through our bodies, homes, and motherboards. Mining copper is seen by some as a relatively harmless extraction process, a necessary evil, even enabling ecological solutions. And I started wondering about who is doing this earth moving. Uh, Copper was first mined in 8,000 BCE on the island of Cyprus, home of Venus of Aphrodite, which is how they share the same alchemical symbol that was later taken up by the Women's Liberation Movement. Copper has been used in contraceptive devices for millennia. Most recently, it was used in the IUD starting in the late 60s. Contraception advocates like Margaret Sanger saw the IUD as a tool to liberate women and encourage pleasure. But by the 60s and 70s, corporations, population control advocates uh, and NGOs positioned the IUD as an essential sterilization device that could control America's low-income indigenous and immigrant communities and solve the, quote, population bomb of the global south. Millions of women were given the IUD without their consent or economically incentivized to accept the IUD. But many of these women, especially in patriarchal societies where they felt it wasn't safe to openly challenge their husbands, saw the IUD as an invisible long-term contraception device that gave them the ability to control their bodies and lives. Problematically, one of the IUDs used by 2.5 million women was the Plaston Dalkon Shield. Does anybody here remember that coming up? Um, Released on the market in 1971 without adequate testing, the device's multi-filament string carried bacteria from the vagina into the uterus, which led to an increased likelihood of infections, septic abortions, and infertility. 18 women died, 200,000 reported serious injuries, And after 12,000 lawsuits and mass uproar, the Dalkin Shield was finally pulled off the market in the late 80s, a while after, and the pharmaceutical company went bankrupt. Since that time, scientific advances improved the safety of the IUD. And in the early 2000s, after memories of the Dalkin Shield faded, the copper IUD was reintroduced to moms in the global north, like me, as a means of family planning. Which brings us to today. So a week after Trump was elected, Planned Parenthood saw a 900% rise in women requesting the IUDs, a contraception that would outlast Trump's presidency. Uncertainty in the Supreme Courts also drove up the number of IUD numbers, as did the Supreme Court confirmation of Kavanaugh. While anti-choice conservatives attempt to rewrite science and scientists push back, Advocacy organizations are doubling down on campaigns that affirm the right to, you, to choose. And Reaper Justice organizations continue to focus on the way that women of color have traditionally faced economic and systemic barriers in gaining access to contraceptive technology. So against the complex history of the IUD and its bright future, the IUD for many of us today is a tool enabling self-determination and desire. It's an antenna connecting me with 170 million women across the world who also have copper antenna, and I want to create a monument commemorating our collective biopower. I want to solder my ID to a lightning rod that sits atop a very tall building, besting it by an inch. Imagine as the bolt of lightning strikes the IUD radiating into the atmosphere, a tingle resounding in the name of reprojustice, technological self-determination, and women's desire. So this is just the start of the project. As I'm working on a book and a film, and public art components, um, I'll also be revealing them or engaging people on social media. And with that, we have respondents. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But yeah.
4: I have, as I was telling students today, I have no noun that kind of um, logically is attributed to my work, so I just string a lot of the nouns that I am all together. So thank you for living through that. And thank you, Steve and Sasha. Um, I'm really excited to for this conversation with you. Thank you um, so let me just begin um, by talking a little bit about Marissa's work. But I want to thank you for how bold and challenging it is. It's, it's visceral and it, it is forever searching like a divining rod, for the best medium, the best media, the best place and space and partnership. And the best impact and dialogue and partners. And um, your work really illustrates that kind of searching. Um, so as collaborative it is and as multi-dimensional, it doesn't include everything. Um, those kind of choices have to be really carefully made and rigorous and really tested. You know, why a film? Why an app? Why a road trip or an experimental film? There has to be a reason that you use the tools that are available, not just because um, they're available. If we use everything, it becomes page and it really blanks out the integrity of form and medium and it doesn't create anything new to offer um, or any unknown questions or reflections. Instead, it loses its integrity and its interest and its identity. And I think as artists, um, we are always going towards the tension. That's what we will talk about. Um, We're going towards the questions, the reality that doesn't exist, that we're hoping to create until it is reality. The kinds of things we don't know. Um, The failures that are incredibly rich, even if um, we hope one sees them. And so I really feel like you go through and towards those kinds of tensions. Um, and I think of work like an ecology. I was actually talking to students today about that, and your work feels much the same. And in an ecology, it depends on reciprocal relationships, and that's between any them. So it's not just people or partnerships, it's it's sound, it's form, it's experience. Um, And those elements are not equal, but they're equitable. Um, And one of the examples I was talking about today in in our roundtable was really about oxygen and water. And right now, I need oxygen. Um, But don't we can choose between oxygen and water because I'll need water next. But I don't need it now. And so there's an equity between the relationship, not inequality. And to really think about each element being necessary, irreplaceable, and different. And the idea of exploiting difference, and that really comes through in the work that you do—the um, different approaches and why you come to work in different ways. Um, it also speaks a lot about collaboration and um, thinking about the elements that um, you don't often use and how they weaken systems. Um, how we don't think in very cohesive ways and understand what we're ignoring. Show up in work like malnutrition, it sometimes shows up over time, but not immediately. And so, you can make really wonderful work, um, but leaving great voids and weaknesses. And it may show up in impact, or it may show up in a way the depth of participation or engagement. It may also show up just in the integrity of the work and, and how much it can live and hold, and the kind of lives. So some of the questions that I was thinking about when I was looking at Marissa's work is really about how to decide on form. I think those of us that create things across a lot of mediums really um, have to work very hard to understand the forms that we choose. And when people try to put you into a silo or into a genre or into a field, how, how do you help them understand place from which you meet and engage in your work. Um, you work and collaborate in ways that are not dependent and that really break boundaries. And the work that Marissa does, going to go back between you and Marissa. I, I think somehow I wrote it that way, so I hope she is always you. Um, she's also always mine. <laughs> um, but I wonder how you define expectations of a medium that has a long history, um, like film, um, you know, like oral history, and really understanding um, you know, why you're choosing those things. And so for me, it, it really makes me think a lot about um, queer space and how I simply use the framework of queer space might be to think about um, space in which appropriate, appropriate certain aspects of the material and social world in which we all live, and composes them into counter constructions to create the freer space of expression, resistance, space to be the other, also to be yourself in your own terms, the less defined, the less regulated. And queer space is useful in a framework of assessing political and cultural change and interventions, both by what is changed and what needs to be changed, and who we become through that process. So it's really about um, kind of all tenses of the verb: past, present, and future. Um, where we come from, where we are, and where we are. And not though only those of us who identify as queer, but also part of a place-making practice um, that describes a new understanding of space, enabling the production of queer comfortable publics that, that often means creating spaces that do exist, um, and that don't exist in their own For me, I'm always engaging in the construction, investigating that kind of space and existence. And I think Marissa is also. Um, You're also working to create spaces that um, create communities that might not be there. So even though domestic workers might all all define themselves as domestic workers, through your road trip, they may define themselves as part of the man man which is yet another community and engagement. Um, A lot of really risky work can do that. Can create communities that don't exist. It's really kind of exploiting in the best sense of the word. The idea of being part of a tribe, coming from a tribe, and being part of different tribes. Um, That happens in um, interracial um, children, right? It happens in queer individuals, people living with different kinds of abilities, um, nationalities, The idea that we see ourselves as a part of multiple communities, some that exist and some that don't. And Marissa really allows for these kind of revelations in new and really tripped up platforms. Um, It is the invisible as a tool, a political state, and aesthetic that I think that Marissa employs. You know, creating books that are eaten or stolen and inviting people to, um, as she said, sacrifice for pleasure or enjoy sacrifice as a pleasure. Whether she sneaks inside a well-oiled media rogue stream in Uganda, and I actually spend a lot of time in Uganda, and it's really like this work is rogue on top of rogue on top of rogue, meets experiential, meets experimental. And it's really a very interesting thing that she is able to actually kind of bootleg a bootleg operation and surprise them by injecting experimental videos. Um, it's really about the, the collage of the seen and the unseen by the seen and the unseen. And what Marissa really does is add oxygen and audiences to experiences and narratives we think we might know. Um, just using the last work IUD, periodic table, copper, climate, self-determination, electrical fields, reproductive rights, and let's not forget sex. I mean, you don't need an IUD if you're not having sex. With the opposite sex, you could possibly get pregnant. Um, So one thing that I just want to end on thinking about your work and something you did of bring up is and a question that I engage a lot too is that socially engaged and totally impactful work often comes up that there are no best practices. Or how do you understand best practices? And are there techniques and practices that everyone should be using? And how can the idea of a best practice actually relate to socially engaged rather <laughs> um, art, when in fact the practice actually is reflecting a porous relationship? and nature of necessity to society and how it's changing. And so maybe best practices work at one time and not another or in one situation or with one partnership or medium and not another. And is it actually acceptable to articulate ideal practices? Is there a right way to allow art making in an autonomy and um, a kind of um, freedom and ambiguity to exist and search out what it needs to be while also understanding um, best practices and what are the best ways to do work that's impactful um, and also engage artistic excellence. How do you create tools that challenge assumptions in society and also are judged and assessed by society in those systems? Um, think that I would just like to end with thanking you um, for your courage to employ genres in free and almost relentless ways, um, and really crossing social borders of race and class and gender and geography. Your work is part artwork, part news vehicle, part cultural critique, part collage, part oral history, part humanist relief, which even more of, and you also play with a temporal quality um, of experience. You you play with the unexpected and the planned, and you often come up with some
5: It's, it's especially um, kind of uh, feels unusual for me uh, to be in because this is not uh, explicitly a uh, series on education or on teaching and learning. Um, but I come, I have, uh, as indicated, a background that is both in the arts but also very degree in education because I realized, um, with the, I have a theater background, but I realized very early on in my growth and development as an artist that there were things that I couldn't understand about the work that I was trying to do in theater without teaching. I couldn't find another way to get the insights that I wanted and needed and wanted and needed without teaching. Um, and that has—that uh, was a pretty long time ago, and it's kept me going for the last forty-plus years on uh, trying to understand the relationship between artistic work and the educational work. I just wonder how many people here um, identify as teachers. Great. Um, I—I uh, I think you know, but most of them. I don't hear very well. If you hear me, it's but I can't word discriminate. In in the care force video, there's a early on you identify yourself with three words. Do you remember what they are? Um
2: domestic employer? Is it
5: domestic someone who employs a caregiver? Um I the words that I thought I heard were artist, something, mom. Oh. Um I think it
2: said artist Teacher. Sure. <laughs> I think I said
3: artist, teacher,
5: and mom. So I, I thought you did, but then I got worried that you didn't. I just made it up because it's what I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> it's part of what you do, and you don't understand what people are saying. Um, so, uh, so, so there's a lot of teachers here, and how many are students? Okay, I think I hope all things go well. up. Um, in a sense. Uh, I come from uh, the uh, the feeling that there is a very deep connection between artistic work and practice, teaching and learning, and practice, education, work and practice. And Jane, I very much appreciate your phrase about artists going toward the question, which I feel uh, is also what we uh, should be doing when we're teaching. Learning that is not just going for answers, but going toward the deeper and deeper and more complex and more compelling and harder to answer questions. Um, and art and uh, art serves as a kind of inquiry process, and I think um, and teaching and learning uh, also serve as a kind of artistic enterprise. That is, there's there are very strong similar dimensions between. Very strong aesthetic dimension in learning, a very strong social dimension in learning, um, and and in art, obviously a strong intellectual, strong ethical dimensions as well, and certainly political dimensions. So, um, so I I come and I and I watch and I listen to this talk about this and present this kind of dazzling array of projects which are not simply artistic projects. I mean, they design projects, they're activist projects, they're projects, and they're, and they're projects. And I, I just want to try to um, talk about two quick things that from a learning perspective that I think you know, this work helps to illuminate and also question her, uh, about and about, her, and about, her, and about in general. Folks doing engage in this kind of artistic enterprise. So, um, so in thinking uh, more and more in the last couple of years about socially engaged practices and public participatory practices, um, I've been thinking about it, trying to think about it through uh, those practices through a learning lens. And one of the things that um, seems uh, almost too obvious to state, Therefore, incredibly important to state is that there's no learning without engagement. Um, you, in other words, learning is not so easy. Um, you can learn some easy things, fairly easy, but the hard things to learn are hard. They take a lot of work and they take sustained engagement. And anybody who's ever taught in a classroom you knows that you've got your um, work set out for you because from what I think of as the first three minutes. First three minutes of, of a term, first three minutes of a class, you have to get the learner uh, or your students to make a decision that they once again want to engage with the work on a deeper level. That is, they want to do the work involved in this learning. And um, one of the beautiful things about w- looking back and forth, looking back and forth, art and education is that artists are deeply committed to the problem of not just the first three minutes of interaction time, but the first 10 seconds, the first 30 seconds. In other words, if I don't get people to pay attention quickly, and if I don't grab them and hold them so that they begin to become not just um, present, but fully engaged, then I've lost them. I've lost them as a teacher, I've lost them as an artist. So whether I frame my intentions as an artist and as learning intentions, or as I have learning goals, whether I do that or not, I still have that problem of how to get and hold attention and to deepen that intention as I keep someone engaged, so that they, so in a sense, I'm doing less and less of it, the work, and they're doing more and more. Of and part of what I think, you know, if we were to go back and just play through again all of these projects that you were describing, that uh, there is a remarkable, almost an encyclopedia of, of um, approaches to grabbing attention. And I'll just name a couple of them that I, that I captured as we were um, looking. Grabbing attention, holding attention, and encouraging people to go deeper. First of all, a number of your projects, that Seem to me, are almost framed as journey. Certainly, Air Force, there's a, a journey in quality. And there's a, I love that video, a, and, a, and, the, and the whole notion of the project has come along with us on this journal, which is one of the, the um, sometimes explicit, sometimes um, implicit ways that teachers can get people to come with, to be passionate about something, and to say, Come with me on this, because I'm going to find something out, and I want you to come with me. I just, um, i going to be careful about time. I'll just, you hold on the back one more, but I think there are it's so many. Well, i mentioned mention who um, it's so counterintuitive, you know. Like in classrooms, you just wouldn't think, okay, what I want to do is scare the shit out of the kids so that I'll get their stories. But there's so much playfulness and in this idea of terrorizing, and so much joy in what you created there, what the community created there, as a, and, and a kind of energy that yielded up stories from people. This is from an arts and literacy. If you just go back into much more traditional settings, and literary settings, this is gold. This is what you want to be doing to get young people with all of this energy to get down on their hands and and start designing maybe and creating stories of and Um I think the, the the last thing that I wanted to um, raise again from a learning perspective is a question. I mean, you raise the question of success. How do you know whether any of these projects are a success? And that's a big question for me because um, every every term, every year uh, that I'm teaching, I have the exact same question. Did this work? Did we get somewhere? Where did we go? Um, Are people in a different place than they started? Do they understand things that they didn't before? Can they, can they um, engage with the world in a different way than they could before? And can they solve problems that they couldn't solve before? So, those are questions that are very hard to answer. And, and I'm, I'm thinking more and more. I mean, I know that the problem with the kind of work that you and many others do, um, particularly in this kind of a public participatory and socially engaged one, where it is the interaction, it is with people that the work has to happen. It's not just a question of creating um, objects. It's about creating experiences. And and the question is about documentation because it's very these are ephemeral. It's very important to document. And the and the the question is in documenting what do you focus on? So. In a lot of these, we were seeing what, getting the, the quick version, obviously, all of these could have been opened up. Um, but what we got less of was a sense of what it was actually like to be there as a child, to be there as a domestic worker, to be there in any of these contexts that you created, and, and, and to engage in, the, in that experience over time. And I think that one of the, The challenge is for many of us as educators, in order to answer this question for ourselves about success, that is what is the meaning of this experience that we're trying to create, is to figure out the ways to document not only the work that we've created, that is the space, but the experience that other people have in that space. Okay. Thanks.
2: Um, so maybe I'll respond first to those questions, and then take other questions. Um, but so the, the question, um, one of your questions was about um, the something not being a logical uh, solution to how to get kids excited about literacy. Um, and um, I'll say that um, what seemed to me was, um, I was thinking about Santa Claus, and even when you um, by the way, Igbo Bandido is bigger than Santa Claus in that part of northern Honduras. Um, but there's a delight in pretending as if you believe in Santa Claus, even if, if when you don't believe. And there's a delight in pretending like you do. Um, and if you think about um, when you're around a campfire as a kid, um, it's fun to pretend like you believe in ghosts and you're getting scared. Um, so it's what some people call the magical as if. Um, and the other point, um, it also answers in part, um, my, my mother was a Berlitz teacher for a short period of time. Do you guys know what Berlitz is? Language acquisition, like these language shapes. And the strategy of Berlitz that she, you know, she would use it with me in the household, where you come up with these really absurd associations and like these very visual associations um, so oftentimes, I mean, it's impl- it impacted my work because I'm trying to come up with something that's so wacky that you can't get it out of your head. Um, and it also makes me recall um, the conversation I had with the director of the Care Force film when he, you know, we were scripting it out, because the director was scripted. Um, we were, he asked me to describe how he came up with the idea of the Care Force, which is guess, guess from the film. And it seemed to me actually quite logical. Um, So, part of it's maybe being, um, I don't know, um, wayward. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It seemed logical to me that that's how you would go and meet people in another place and what I would do with my child. Um, And then, let's see, to your questions. Your questions were about ecology, um, queer space, and... And also best practices. Oh, best practices. so best practices, I think um, user testing, which is not really a strategy that you learn in art school, it's something that you learn maybe in comparative media studies or in media production or in film or like technology or in architecture, like any other thing, I, I really don't understand. <laughs> I mean, maybe you have like crits, you know, a couple of crits and then you like put it out in the world, which seemed, seems crazy to me. Um, but I mean, I'm, I'm interested in um, a scale um, and the scale might be invisible to some people, um, but in order to make something work, I need to get feedback from a lot of people, and necessarily, I also need to involve, um, you know, the people who it's I'm seeking to be in dialogue with. I need to involve them from the get-go in the project itself. Um, so I think of co-design like um, it's like dating; you don't want to get married, you know, right off the bat you know, you want to go out for coffee and then you want to get to know them and to see how they write or what their texts are like and so forth and so you kind of get to know. And I might do, I, oftentimes I'm doing kind of short um, projects to get to know what that relationship is like. Um, as in, it's common that you, um, an advocacy organization or like I'll work with lawyers and they really don't know what to do with an artist or what that even looks like and so oftentimes the first thing they think of is um, oh, can you design a flyer and uh, there a lot of artists will say no i'm this is beyond me but i feel like i mean i happen to have i taught myself graphic design i enjoy doing it it's really easy for me to do that and it's a service and it's just a way to start the conversation Um, it's like can i borrow uh, you know a spoonful of sugar from your neighbor kind of thing it start? i don't know whatever so it's like i i'm happy for it to start off in kind of transactions and um John Seely Brown, who is at Microsoft and he started off in education, Um, he wrote this business manual in the 90s when the US was starting to offshore some of their labor. And the book, uh, this book is about managing those relationships. And there's a whole chapter on what he calls productive friction. Um, And he also talks about collaboration in a way that I thought was useful for artists working with other disciplines or sectors. Um, and he describes that there's three levels of collaboration, and the first one is transactional levels, um, and um, then it kind of moves up to being integrated, in which you're sharing staff and resources. So um, I think it's helpful to um, students um, or you know people who are wanting to engage in these kind of practices to understand that it's um, you know you kind of like start it's a sequence, you know, and kind of culminates.
3: Um, no. Other questions? Yeah. Here we go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in that uh, the thing you did for the uh, NYC Immigrant Affairs thing, mm-hmm. literacy stuff, those typewriters,
2: what were those typewriters? Oh, oh, that was in the Billy like the typewriters that yeah. we made out of cardboard. Like, why typewriters?
3: Were, were, were they actual <laughs> devices?
2: Well, we, so with the kids in New York City around Bilo Bendido, um, the New York City workshop was we were doing literacy, 21st century literacy. So they were learning um, we were teaching them the software called Popcorn J.S, um, which Mozilla was um, putting forward, and we partnered with them on that project. And the theme was Bilo Bendido. And so we also like filmed um, an episode. Um, of Bibli Bandito ourselves, and kind of wrote the script and come up with like the costumes and so forth. And we decided that we needed um, a bunch of kids who um, were these kind of scouts who um, um, n- were trying to lure Bibli Bandito to coming to the Big Apple. So that's what we made cardboard
3: and computer. Uh, like so they were, they, were, they
0: were cardboard,
3: they weren't actual. Like, yeah. <laughs>
0: Um, we talked a lot about the co design
5: process. I'm just kind of curious in, when you're traveling overseas to Uganda or Zondra or some of have any um, problems, when you're done with the project, do you follow up with
0: the folks that were involved afterwards, or is it just something that you just sort of create and you allow them to sort of take on and, and, and take of the progression? they
2: want? Um, that's a really good question. Um, really, my partnerships end up being multi year, as in, um, like, Eight, I mean I think I'm working on three different things that are developing over for the past decade um, and they start from kind of transactional or you know like s- just kind of slow dating space um, and then we check in afterwards and we kind of see where things are at and sometimes things come up and so um, with the um, video sync Uganda there's another group recently who was like oh that's great we want to do this linking too and we're like okay well here's what we learned um, so, did that answer your question?
0: Yeah, well I'm just kind of curious because I guess what I'm trying to get at is, um, I'm just curious like how involved you are after you Oh,
2: okay. I feel like that's a good, um, in terms of best practices, it falls into that question too. Um, I very carefully choose the organizations that I seek to partner with. Um, the criteria, um, uh, one of them is, that I look for groups on the ground um, who are poised to achieve victory, and victory can be however they define it. So they're on the ground, like, I worked with an NGO in Honduras who's already doing multiple programs there. In Uganda, it's this NGO plus this community of artists and filmmakers there, um, and so forth. Um, And we kind of decide on what that phasing is like, Um, And sometimes something comes out and we're like, oh, that was unexpected. What if we now do this? Um, So, yeah. Can you list some of the other criteria? Oh, yes, thank you. Um, Well, I look for organizations that have the, where it's one person, one person who can then parlay communication from a wider network, as in National Domestic Workers Alliance is an alliance of 10,000 women um, with um, chapters, forty-six chapters, in something like twenty-three states, all across the United States. I work on a national level. I check in with like one person on a national level, or sometimes, sometimes different people, um, one person on like a regional level, different states, uh, local level, city level, borough level. Um, But I need to be in contact with one person as opposed to if I'm in conversation with six people and then it is like too many cooks in the kitchen. But so like there's a funnel. Um, I also look for organizations where they have the creative capacity to engage in collaboration, which um, is not always the case, as in creative capacity might be um, they're too busy. Like Trump got elected, and a lot of the groups that I was working with, like we're just putting out fires. We don't have time to do something that's like outside of putting out fires. For example, um, it also is. Our, I also look for individuals who um, uh, need. I have identified already that they need creativity to solve the, something that they're seeking to tackle. Um, so I don't go in assuming I'm going to convince someone. I'm looking for people who are already wanting that. Um, and then I look for organizations that um, can kind of get humor. Or, I mean, people Bendito you know, there's like an edge there, do you know what I mean? So if they don't, that's what I feel like I can
3: bring to the world.
0: So. I feel like part of that question was also about like commercial. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. And yeah, like, you know, like what stays and like, I, I don't maybe, you know, maybe I'm misinterpreting it, you
2: know? I think that's, a, that's a good question. So, um, in usually in the art world, there's the individual author. Um, and then the other people like don't get credited in ways I think are actually important too. Um, I use the theater model of authorship in which there's um, the original scriptor may or may not be involved with the adaptation of the thing onto the stage. and there's the lighting person who gets credited and there's the costume designer who gets credited. And then the iteration of or you know, how it gets deployed depends on the energy from the audience and what's working. Um, so that's how I think of authorship. Um, I feel like when something goes out in the world and goes beyond my being there, um, then I feel like it's a success. And I feel like it's also tapped on a different level. It's tapped into this There's something for me there that's in this idea of a death drive and also a transcendence. You know what I mean? It's like the IUD on the building being atomized into bits. <laughs> it's like distending, but um, yeah, or like millions of people this <laughs> That, to me, that would be a dream come true. Thank
3: you.